welcome to the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. If you listen to this podcast regularly, you have likely heard us mention the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. It is one of the big movements today fighting on behalf of poor people in a truly holistic way. And I'd say more about that, but you'll hear all about that in a moment because this episode features one of its co-chairs. So I had a chance to sit down with Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris. She is a co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. And she's also the director of the Cairo Center for Religions, Rights, and Social Justice. So here is Jim's conversation with Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris. Reverend Theo Harris, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So the Poor People's Campaign was originally launched in 1968 by Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And it was revived in 2017 by yourself and Reverend Dr. William Barber. To start off, can you tell us what the Poor People's Campaign aims to accomplish? So the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, builds off of, of many years, many decades, in fact, of, of poor people and and faith leaders and moral leaders and activists and people of conscience and organizers have been doing out of grassroots communities all across the United States. And, you know, our goals are to to shift uh, this distorted narrative that exists, um, a narrative that blames poor people for our poverty, that pits us against each other, and that uh, feeds us the lie of scarcity when we're really living in abundance. Um, It aims to impact elections and impact policies, um, and it aims to to build power amongst the 140 million people who are poor and low-income in the United States um, into a force. a force like Dr. King talked about um, in the last years of his life, uh, a new and unsettling force um, that can uh, unsettle a complacent national life um, and um, build up the power to make the power structures say yes when they may be desirous of saying no. And so, you know, there are many folks that are a part of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, who were a part of the 1967-68 Poor People's Campaign. and and myself and, and many others that have been playing a leadership role, you know, were shaped by the Welfare Rights Union, um, the Welfare Rights Organization, uh, which actually had a lot to do with the founding and the calling for and some of the policy positions of the Poor People's Campaign back in 67 and 68. Um, and so that continuity exists. But we also say that even if Dr. King, Marion Wright Edelman, the welfare rights workers, um, indigenous leaders, um, farm workers hadn't called for a poor people's campaign 52 years ago. Um, we would need to be uh, calling for one and organizing one now when nearly half of the U.S. population uh, is experiencing some form of poverty and when um, one of the, the biggest killers in the country is poverty. Um, you know, we need, to, we need to come together across all these lines of difference and, and build something that could make life better for everyone. So can you say, how does the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, differ from the other efforts that are happening already in the United States around combating poverty? So I've been involved in grassroots anti-poverty organizing for about 25 years. I I come out of um, many different movements and organizations that are led by those most impacted by poverty. by racism, by ecological devastation, uh, groups like the National Union of the Homeless and the National Welfare Rights Union. Um, and, and many of these different grassroots groups, low-wage workers, uh, families 
fighting for healthcare, you know, have come together to build this campaign and to call for this campaign. I mean, I think what's really important and and in some cases different uh, uh, from this campaign um, to other efforts is that it really is being led by those that are most impacted. Um, uh, and uh, again, folks are not just telling their sad stories of, of how hard it is to live with water or, or to um, live in a town that you know, um, corporations have polluted um, until people are dying. Um, but but to actually come up with solutions and solutions coming out of the very communities where these injustices are being brought against them, and solutions that that again don't just solve the problem of Flint, Michigan, or of Cross at Arkansas, but that solve um, these issues across geography, across um, uh, across the nation. And so, so to me, one of the things that's most important is that those that are most impacted um, are, are in the lead. It's also, you know, deeply important um, that we are actually calling for a moral revival um, and that moral values um, and what we define as moral values is what our faith traditions define as moral values, which is living wages and, and health care and uh, decent education and housing and clean air and clean water and um, a freedom to uh, from discrimination and racism and xenophobia, um, that these moral values um, are at the center of what we do and, and call our nation to be. Um, and, uh, and that we have folks of various faiths in in the in the lead in the movement um, and people not of faith but who believe in the arc of the universe bending towards justice and so I mean I think these are elements of what the Poor People's Campaign and National Call for Moral Revival is doing that is is different I mean there are coordinating committees made up of impacted leaders and clergy and activists in over forty states. Um, it's very ground up. It's very grassroots. You know, it wasn't that we went to big national organizations first. It was that the people um, formed this um, from below um, and then have been able to to get the attention of national organizations, of international unions, of faith denominations and bodies um, who want to be, you know, in, in this work together. Um, but again, you know, uh, what we believe us we need a national movement, but a national movement is about nationalizing these local and state-based movements. Um, and, and that's really how we're organized and, and what we're trying to do. So one of the demands of the original Poor People's Campaign was to provide every American with a guaranteed annual income. And this has also come up as, as one of the demands in the revival of, of the campaign. Can you talk a bit about how you see a guaranteed income fitting into the, the larger goals of the Poor People's Campaign? I mean, so uh, the guaranteed annual income was, you know, a, a key demand um, that, again, welfare rights brought forward um, back in the 67-68 campaign. Um, uh, you know, it was it was also about expanding the welfare roles and and the and the resources that people were getting. It was it was about living wage jobs. Um, it was about, you know, adequate housing. I mean, again, a lot of things that folks don't don't know that much about. Um, uh, and and there was a power behind it. Um, you know, folks were were able to, you know, push even Richard Nixon to to come out in in support of of this guaranteed annual income. Um, 
and and again because of of that kind of genealogy that history those roots um you know we've tried to in this campaign follow back you know to who's doing the organizing and so you know welfare rights came into this work you know strong and and said you know again you know even after welfare reform even after the ending of the entitlement of of you know basic um social services um you know, we 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 need there to be a baseline um, for for folks, for poor folk, to not, you know, have to suffer so much. Um, and so, so that's in there, and that's in there right next to the right to living wage jobs, right? And it's in there also with universal health care and free education, and not just elementary and middle and high school, but we believe in free education like colleges and universities and, and, and all of these pieces of our agenda, of our moral agenda, we see as instricably connected. Um, and, and that, you know, if you're, if you're for housing, you're also for living wage jobs and guaranteed income. If you're for, you know, protecting the planet, then you want, you know, um, housing for all. And, and just that, like, and that we can't, separate these different pieces. Um, but you know, they're all in there together because of the history of, of, of the organizing work and of the interrelatedness of the different, you know, problems and issues that people are trying to solve. So on that note, I think there has been, as I'm sure you've seen growing interest in recent years in the idea of, of universal basic income, which providing a baseline income to every single person in the country. And there have been different proposals that people have Loaded on how exactly the policy would be designed. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on what, to, to fit into the framework you were just talking about, what a guaranteed income would need to look like in order to ensure it was accomplishing the goal of, of working to eliminate poverty and providing that baseline. Yeah, well, I think there's a, a couple of different aspects of this. I mean, I think on the one hand, again, uh, we're not going to be a campaign that that only focuses on something like guaranteed annual income or basic income, right? Um, it is a given to us that that would be alongside of of universal health care and you know good public transportation and and quality education. Um, it's also uh, connected to, in our minds, living wage jobs. You know, um, uh, like that it's not that like corporations get to be able to pay their workers less because there's this basic income. No, we're saying there should be a standard of living that everyone has that is adequate, that is decent, that is, that is life giving. And we're not going to use this to be able to lower, justify lowering wages. We're not going to use this to say we don't need social security or healthcare. We're not going to use this to say we don't need to build out public infrastructure and public goods and public, you know, whether it's parks and libraries or sanitation systems and water systems, right? Like it's not each person for themselves, um, but that actually that there still should be a, a floor. You know, when the 1996 welfare reform law was passed and put into effect, it didn't just impact folks that were on welfare. It brought wages down 20%. It meant that they could take on public housing and they could cut health care. And, and, and they would do these state block grants that then got to be how 
how healthcare is provided and all of these things. And so, so for us in, in our demands, we see these connections. And so folks like whether, you know, at, at different moments in life might not be able to work. They should have a, a, a good life. Um, our society can provide that. But again, it's not at the, on the backs of other social programs. It's not on the back of all these other pieces. And so to us, it's, it's it's a, a kind of wholeness of um of of seeing the you know connection between why we're we're talking about voting rights right like a lot of times folks would wouldn't think there's a connection between voter suppression and basic income but there is right the the same the same places that are are denying people their right to vote are the places that have the highest poverty rates have the least social services, you know, are using the block grants that they have for different things to 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 bail out corporations and not provide for the people. And so, so to us, like this, this is how it all kind of comes together. Um, and it's 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 a piece and an important piece, but only one piece of a of a larger agenda. So, the Poor People's Campaign, a more national call for more revival. The big launch was was last year with the Forty Days of Moral Action. And you just recently held your Moral Action Congress in Washington, D.C. What's next? What's coming up? So at that Poor People's Moral Action Congress, um, we put out uh, the kind of call for a tour, uh, organizing tour. We're calling it We Can Do More, Mobilizing, Organizing, Registering, and Educating. Um, And we, we put out a call for a mass Poor People's Assembly and Moral March on Washington which will be on June 20th of 2020. Um, and so what what this year will be focused on is uh, base building, power building in the states, um, uh, registering people for a movement, but a movement that votes and that educates and organizes and protests together. Um, you know, these, these coordinating committees in the 40 states, um, you know, are, are regularly taking up the different struggles that people are facing in their communities um, and, and showing that the campaign in their state is there to resolve those problems, to, to connect those issues. Um, and, uh, and again, then building towards this massive assembly and moral march um, where it'll be between the primary and the conventions um, and it'll be right at a moment when I think folks either will be engaged and excited or won't be because they won't be hearing their issues still. And we're going to make sure that the issues that are affecting the majority of people the majority of the time are front and center in our national life. Um, and and that not only are we talking about those issues, but we're taking up the solutions um, and that we're building the power to be able to enact those demands. And so we're pretty excited about, you know, this call for this massive mass Poor People's Assembly and Moral March on Washington, June 20th, 2020. That was Jim Pugh and Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris on the Basic Income Podcast. I, I find it very helpful to, to listen to these conversations because we spend so much of our time just making the case that basic income is a good idea and that this should be something that we do. And of course, it's part of a, a larger package that involves, I think, universal health care, um, a lot of action around housing, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but there's so much work to do just to get people hip to the idea of basic income that that feels like enough most of the time. 
But if you actually want a society where everyone's taken care of and people are able to provide for themselves or are taken care of regardless of whether that's true, basic income is only one piece of the puzzle. And of course, if your, your mission is to take care of everyone, I'm very glad that they consider basic income part of that puzzle, but it's only one piece. Yeah, I think that what you heard from Dr. Theo Harris is what you, what you should really expect from a group that has a goal of really fully eradicating poverty in the U.S. Because we talk about basic income as, as eradicating poverty, absolute poverty, monetarily, but if you're talking about what does it mean to make sure that every poor person can really have a good life in this country, then there are the other aspects of the system that are, are interlocked and connected in so many various ways. But it, it makes sense then that you would want to think more broadly than just a guaranteed income part. You would want to think about all those connected pieces and how that all interplays so that what you're proposing, what your demands are here, is something that, that completely transforms that, that system that, that exists right now. And often we talk about basic income, or not often, but you hear basic income contrasted against other ideas like expanding the ITC or a jobs guarantee. And, you know, the, those are worthwhile debates. But, I don't know, the, the thing that she mentioned at one point, clean water. And that, that for some reason, just brought home the idea to me that basic income is not going to be enough for a lot of people. For some people, yeah, just a thousand bucks a month, they can kind of take care of the rest of their lives. Some people are getting poisoned by their tap water. And a thousand bucks a month, you know, the best it'll do is help them leave, but not everyone can do that either. And there are these very fundamental things that I think everyone would agree on that, you know, aren't aren't just money. You know, healthcare is another one where a thousand dollars a month, especially in this country, is not going to get you adequate healthcare. And so, yeah, if if the goal, and I think that is the goal of most basic income advocates, is to have a a country where you are okay. If you're here, you're you you might not be great, but you're okay. Yeah. <laughs> then, then money is not everything. Yeah, it's a lot, but it's not everything. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's. I think that's exactly right. I think that's. I think that's the perspective that she's bringing here, and I think it's it's the right perspective to take. I, I mean, I think that that is part of the. Once you get into really diving in to understand UBI and and what it can do and all that. Part of that process is recognizing the limitations of what you're proposing. It's it's part of it is recognizing the amazing good it can do, and being able to really understand that such that you can effectively advocate for it. But also recognizing, okay, it's going to solve these problems. It's going to help in these other problems. And there's this other stuff that we need to be considering as well. Doesn't necessarily mean that whatever you propose has to deal with all those aspects at the same time, but being aware of that and, and being upfront about, okay, here's, here's something that's very powerful that, that could be part of, of what we're ultimately trying to do. And I think it adds credibility in terms of making this a larger movement and bringing people and other causes into this movement. When you say things, and you know, not this, you have to believe in universal health care if you believe in basic income, but I do, and I think that's a signal to other people who, where that's, if that's their big issue, if they're saying universal health care, and I'm like, yeah, Universal healthcare is great, also basic income, that means we're at least somewhat on the same wavelength. And to, to show that basic income isn't your, the one note that you add to the song, then you know, I, I think it, it shows resonance with, 
you know, with other people and other movements. I also, I thought just thinking more broadly about the Poor People's Campaign, it's, it's really interesting and for me compelling to see a movement that's looking at things at the systems level. Like what, what, is, what are the underlying drivers and these interlocking pieces at play in our society, but also coming at it from a moral perspective. Because I think oftentimes we think on one hand about, oh, these terrible things that are happening, that should stop. And then we may think about, well, our system is broken, like let's analyze and figure out what we can do about it. But this is really creating a, not just a bridge, like really bringing those things together in its essence and saying, we need a society that actually allows everyone to thrive, that doesn't, is not treating anyone as less than human. And here we're going to be figuring out and pushing for these really fundamental changes in our system that move us towards that vision of what our society should look like. Right. It's not just that people should have some basic prosperity and clean water and healthcare and all the rest. It's that we should have a system that produces those outcomes. And that'll do it for this episode of the Basic Income Podcast. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davidson. Please rate us and review us on the podcast service of your choice. And tell your friends, we're always looking to bring more people into this conversation. Talk to you next week. Mm -hmm.